Hello, friends. This is Dr. Benjamin Smith. Welcome back to Philosophy of God. In our last class, we examined the um, very important topics, important topic of uh, the uh, demonstration of God's existence and uh, reviewed and explored uh, really in a detailed way uh, the second way of demonstrating God's existence, that is the argument from first causality um, or the argument that that concludes uh, in the necessary existence of uh, the first cause. This is sometimes, uh, this is usually called historically the second way. Uh, in this class, we're going to proceed to look at some of the divine attributes, what is sometimes called the via negativa, where we look at some of the truths about God that we can deduce based on the fact that God exists as the first cause. So, but before we, uh, this uh, that's, I think a really important part of philosophy of God, uh, and I think that you'll find it very edifying and illuminating. Uh, but before we uh, get into that too far, we need to go back and do a little bit of review. So um, you'll recall that the second argument for the existence of God, the second way, involves an a priori demonstration. That is, it is a kind of argument for the existence of God that is based on um, what we experience in the world right? Um, the empirical facts that we encounter in the world. Um, so it's, it's in that way, it's different than say an uh, Anselm's ontological argument, which is a kind of argument that proceeds basically, basically on reason alone without reference to uh, experience. Um, now, when I say that, of course, it's an a posteriori argument, that doesn't mean that there aren't principles involved. Uh, the most important principle involved in um, the second way is, of course, the principle of causality uh, that has two, two elements to it that we need to pay attention to. Uh, basically, the principle of causality states that uh, for, every for every change or every effect, there is a cause. Um, or, and more explicitly, we could say an external cause, right? So uh, we need to, to always have that principle in mind when we're thinking about um, uh, God's um, this this way of demonstrating the existence of God. Now, I spent a good bit of time in the prior class talking about why that principle is true, and in a lot of ways, it's a principle of common sense. It's a principle we assume all the time in our own actions and operations. That is, that changes uh, have a sufficient cause. Things happen for a reason. Uh, that is, there are factors that make them come about. Uh, and if you eliminate those factors, then the, those effects or changes don't come about. So the principle of causality is, uh, in a lot of ways, you know, as I say, common sense. If you want to go back and think about, if you, if you want to sort of to think about that more deeply, I recommend going back to the last class and reviewing the section where we talk about the principle of causality in terms of act and potency. Um, so, what, you know, basically the, the beginning, the foundation of the second way for uh, demonstrating the existence of God as we look at the world, we see that there is change according to the principle of causality. That means that there are causes, right? But then we observe next that the causes um, that we find in the world uh, are themselves changing, right? And um, depend upon prior causes, right? And this is why they're called secondary causes. Finally, we move to the stage where we recognize that secondary causes are simply not a sufficient explanation for the change that we witness in the world. 
And so that there must be beyond second causality or the order of secondary causes, there must be a first cause, right? That is a cause that does not depend on any prior cause. And this is what all men call God, uh, according to St. Thomas. So uh, today, what we're going to look at then is once we've established the necessary existence uh, of the first cause, we're going to proceed now to look at some of the divine attributes, some of the things that must be true about this first cause for the very reason that it is the first cause, right? So here, this is a very, once you move to the divine attributes, you're moving to a very deductive uh, form of reasoning, right? Then again, if you're if you've taken a little bit of logic or are familiar with it, deductive logic moves from a, a more universal or more absolute truth to a conclusion, right? So we move from, say, you know, the fact that um, all men are mortal to the conclusion that Socrates is mortal, right? Why? Well, the minor premises that Socrates is uh, a man. Um, well, the, the larger truth is that all men are mortal. The larger truth than that is that all animals are mortal, right? The larger truth from than that is that all things that are uh, composed fall apart, okay? So the um, uh, um, when we think about, you know, when we think about these things, uh, this is deductive, very geometrical, mathematical, right, in, uh, in, in reasoning. But remember, we started in experience. Now we're going beyond experience but even in going beyond experience, the kinds of deductions we're making are not ones that are uninformed by experience. Actually, they are consistent with it, I think, as we will see. I, I have here in the notes that these are deductions from the ratio of the first cause. I say ratio, that, that's a, a kind of a little bit of a wiggle term here, but it means it's something like the meaning of the first cause uh, in Thomas literature. You don't want to uh, strictly say, um, from a scholastic perspective, the essence of the first cause, the nature of the first, because we don't have direct understanding of the essence of the first cause as such. Rather, you know, if you think about this entity, of course, God, as first cause, that's really the way in which the world is related to him, right? That isn't his essence as such, right? Um, because in truth, he didn't have to cause, right? Now, if he is going to cause, he is going to be the first cause, but he did not have to cause the world, right? That that was contingent. Um, so uh, nevertheless, you know, having established that there is this first cause that would be rightly called God, uh, we can deduce certain uh, truths about this first cause again, from the very meaning of first cause. Now, the first set of attributes we're going to do in this class uh, proceeds according to what is called the via negativa. In the next class, we'll look at the via eminencia, or the positive attributes. But in this class, we're going to look at the via negativa, and that is the negative attributes uh, of God. That sounds a little strange at first, the negative attributes of God. Um, but what I mean are the the attributes of God that um, involve a denial or a negation. Um, and really, this is an important way of, of proceeding. Put it this way, there are certain things that just can't be the case for the first cause. Why? Because it's the first cause, right? That, that is, there are certain things that um, must be eliminated from withdrawn from, separated from the first cause because of the very nature of first causality. Now, in doing this, what we are removing are really what Thomas and, and other, you know, teachers would call imperfections, right? That is ways in which 
being is limited. Now you'll note as we go through this, these imperfections are characteristics of the kind of being that we experience in a normal basis. And so what we're really saying here then is that the um, common being, we could say, um, ins commune, right, is a kind of being that is caused, it's created, this is what we study in metaphysics properly, um, and it's sort of couched in imperfection, right? There's a certain sort of fragility and limitation to common being that is not appropriately applied to divine being or to the being the first cause. What this is going to help us see really is, uh, I think, the deep um, transcendence of God. There is sometimes a um, really serious mistake that people make in studying uh, Thomas, and that's where they think of, you know, they. there's an author named Lovejoy. His first name's not coming to mind now, but he wrote a book called The Great Chain of Being, and and, and there's, you know, some fine things in that book. Frankly, that book has been, uh, you know, uh, transcended in the scholarship. Your, your understanding of St. Thomas must not depend upon uh, Lovejoy. Uh, that would be a, um, a less than scholarly view. Um, uh, the, 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 the position that sometimes people come away with when they study Thomas through that lens is that, you know, God is just the supreme being, right? He's the biggest being, right? It's kind of like basically that God is ins commune multiplied to infinity. That's not the view of Thomas Aquinas. Maybe the view of blessed Duns Scotus, but it is not the view of Thomas Aquinas, right? And the Via Negativa helps to bring that to the fore, uh, as well as his doctrine of analogy, which we'll look at in our next class. The um, the view of St. Thomas is, you know, that really that we're talking about a different kind of being, and that difference, that transcendence of divine being, the transcendence of first of the first cause, really comes before, as I say, in the Via Negativa, where we remove we deny the imperfections that belong to common being of God, right? We deny that they're applicable to God. God does not suffer. The, the divinity, uh, divine being, does not suffer the imperfections and limitations that are suffered by uh, ins commune or common being. <clears throat> we're going to look at three, um, uh, in, in exploring the via negativa, we're going to focus on three uh, attributes in particular. These are ones that stand out, I think, for their importance in understanding God, but also because they are the subject of uh, some controversy uh, in our own time. All right, so we're going to look at, as I say, immutability. We're going to look at divine simplicity, and we're going to look at necessity, uh, the necessity of God or the necessary existence of God. Uh, these three attributes really, I think, help to bring out right, the transcendence of God. Now, we already talked about immutability some last time. Um, so I don't want to spend too long on it, but it's it's worth our time, right? Because this is one of those things that people, you know, sometimes, frankly, find sort of offensive um, in classical theism. That is the the view that God is is sim, uh, sorry, that God is immutable, that God is unchangeable. You know, we have such a uh, in our modern culture, we tend to sort of think that you know, people say change is good. And I always want to say, really, always. My eyes keep getting worse. 
Those are changes for the ill, right? And when you gain weight and your back begins to go out and your, uh, your upper hamstring becomes sore on a regular basis, those are changes, but they're not for the good, right? So, uh, you know, we, we need to just check that habit. It's almost sort of a blind habit we have of associating change somehow with power or growth always. It's not so, friend. Changes, uh, changes also uh, include decline uh, as well. <clears throat> so, uh, immutability, right? Um, um, you know, sometimes also makes, I think some people makes it sounds like God is static and probably most importantly though, is that God is not relational, right? Because in a relation, right? The terms that relation often change. Sometimes they don't, I guess, but, uh, they often do, right? There's, there's a, there's a, a back and forth between the persons that are related and to say that God is immutable implies that, you know, he's not related to me in a way in which I change him. And that's true and actually good, uh, as we'll see, and in fact, uh, necessary. So let's look at the argument here. And then I'll, I'll make a few general comments um, uh, on this section before we move on. Um, all of these arguments are going to begin with really the supposition of a hypothesis. So we're going to be supposing the opposite of what we're going to prove. So here we'll say, you know, for example, if it were the case that God changed, then what would follow? We're going to see that what would follow is an absurdity. This form of argumentation is called reductio ad absurdum. That is a reduction to the absurd. And then on the basis of that absurdity, we are justified, logically speaking, in inferring the contradictory, right? So if it's false, that all wars are just, right? Uh, then it's fault. Then it's true that some wars are not just. Okay, uh, so we're gonna su suppose the hypothesis, right? We're gonna uh, we're gonna suppose a hypothesis that's actually the opposite of what we want to prove. We're gonna show that that hypothesis leads to a contradiction, leads to an absurdity, and uh, in virtue of that absurdity we will be justified in inferring the contradictory. That is what we really wanted to prove uh, in the first place. So let's suppose that God changes. If God changed, what would be the case? Well, if God changed, of course, we would have to apply the principle of causality, right? We'd have to say, well, wherever there is change, there is a cause. And given our analysis of act and potency, we recognize that, um, Given the chain, um, if there's a change, there's an external cause, right? So that the thing changed, the changing subject would require a cause prior to itself that brought about the change in the changing thing, right? And so that you would have God uh, would himself be something that is caused or moved by another. Well, of course, if that were the case, then, you know, ask yourself, would God be the, are we talking about the first cause? And obviously not. For the first cause to be caused means it's not the first cause. See, that's a straight contradiction. Again, if God is moved, then he has, a, there's a cause of his motion prior to himself, which means that the first cause is caused by another, right? The first cause, which is meant to be, uh, the first cause, which is uncaused, is caused. Contradiction. And that's an absurdity. Therefore, we must infer, deduce necessarily the truth of the contradictory. And the truth of the contradictory is that God does not change. So you see, the assumption of God's change led us to an absurdity. 
which requires us then to deduce the truth of the opposite, namely that God does not change. This leaves God intact. Um, this leaves God, um, um, the, the claim that God is the first cause and exists the first cause that remains uh, coherent. Now, is this a static God? This is something that sometimes we, well, it's unchanging. So it sounds like this boring static, I mean, I don't know, point or something <laughs> you know, out in the cosmos. Uh, and the answer is no. You know, I, I think, of course, our discomfort with trying to think about God as immutable has to do with the limitations of our imagination and experience. We are only um, capable of thinking about or, you know, imagining changing beings because that's all we experience, right, are changing beings in terms of our direct experience. I think what we need to recognize, friends, is that the ability, not the ability, the fact that common being changes is really an indication of its fragility, its imperfection, its lim the fact that it's a limited form of being. See, change involves, right, it's being, you know, the um, common beings change, they come to be, right, that displays their contingency. They're not just being simply, they're not being necessarily, they're being dependent upon something else, right? And that they cease to exist and that they have to take on other perfections through the course of their existence demonstrates their lack, their poverty metaphysically. By they, I'm talking about common forms of being like um, human beings and badgers and birch trees. Uh, those are things that are contingent, imperfect, going away, ceasing to be, right? That's the kind of being that, that changes, right? The cha that, that change, it displays the imperfection and limitation of common being. So really what we need to do is flip our imagination here. It's hard to do, but what you need to kind of recognize is that change is an imperfection. Change is, um, expresses a decline and limitation of being, whereas unchangeable being indicates perfection and fullness. In fact, even though the, uh, uh, immutability is part of the via negativa and involves a negation, we should really recognize that if God is unchanging, then that means he has no potency. And that means that God, the first cause is purely actual, right? And that is kind of a, you know, kind of backing into a positive statement about God that that God has no potency. That's like, oh, he has no potency. That's because he's already so fully actual. He cannot be more actual by any measure, right? Uh, he is fully actual and cannot be more actual because he is pure, unalloyed, unlimited act, actuality, okay? To be a mutable being is to be purely actual being, actuality, uh, without limitations, without fragmentation, without decline, right? Without any lack, right? That is what it means for God to be immutable, right? It's purely actual. I think that's a strong and important thing to come to know about God. God cannot change. It sounds like a limitation, but it's actually the opposite. That's an indication. It's an effect, really, of the fact that God is purely actual, unlimited 
actuality compared to our limited actuality. The next attribute that I want to visit here is divine simplicity. Uh, this is one in which there's a, uh, there's a great deal of controversy about divine simplicity. Interestingly, it is actually, uh, you could call it a, a part of the ecumenical uh, witness, you know, from, you know, the patristics to the Eastern Orthodox to Western Catholics to historically, you know, um, the historically early forms of Protestantism all affirm the simplicity of God. If you look at their creedal statements or doctrinal statements, divine simplicity is a is an ancient uh, affirmation um, uh, of Christians about the God that they worship. Uh, you can find it, as I say, in the patristic liter literature fairly uh, fairly clearly. Now, of course, simplicity sounds weird. We don't, sometimes we have a positive view of simplicity, sometimes a negative one. We tend to, of course, again, because of our experience, you know, we don't, it's hard for us to, to think about what, we, what we're trying to say when we're saying that God is uh, simple. Uh, what is intended here is simply that God has no parts. God is not composed of parts. God is not composite, right? <clears throat> Rather, God is simple. Think about the difference between simplicity and complexity, right? Something, a process or, or, or an object is complex when it has many, many different parts. Uh, an object or a process is simple when it has few or no parts uh, or uh, steps maybe in the process. So what we're saying about God is that God is not composed of parts. Now I'll give you the argument for this and then I'll try to explain why this is so uh, important. The argument uh, is actually a very, I think, strong argument. It's really inherited from the Neoplatonic tradition, um, <clears throat> but it basically runs this way. Of course, we're gonna you know, suppose the hypothesis, but um, what, what does it mean for something to be composite? Well, if it's, real, if it's really composite, if it's a real composition, not just a you know, logical composition, right, or, or, or something, then we're talking about uh, parts that are uh, really distinct parts and therefore potentially apart. They're not necessarily actually together, right? So again, if this is a real, if this is a composition of really distinct parts, then those parts potentially are apart or potentially together, but they're not necessarily and actually together. If so, I hope that that makes sense, right? That is really the really distinct parts, you know, bespeak a potency, right? Um, there's a potency for really distinct things to be apart or to be together, but that togetherness and unity and composition requires a cause, right? Uh, that is a cause that actualizes the potential to be composed, right? So, again, really distinct parts may be composed together may be actualized, but that composition and unity has to be actualized by something else. And of course, through the principle of causality, we know by an external and prior cause. So then let's, play, let's apply this to God, right? If we think about, uh, if we say, well, if God were composed, then he would be composed of really distinct parts. And those really distinct parts could either be together or apart, 
if uh, but their togetherness and unity in the divinity would need to be actualized by a prior and external cause. But God has no prior external cause, and God has no potency. Therefore, it is impossible, impossible that God be composed of really distinct parts. Therefore, God must be simple. I think that that argument is is compelling and deductive. Uh, It really turns on recognizing that um, act and potency are involved in composition. Took me a while to get that argument, to be frank, uh, but... You know, once I, I saw that what we're dealing with here is act and composition, uh, I'm sorry, act and potency uh, in composition, it became clear uh, to me. Again, potency is has no part in God. <clears throat> and also, uh, it's the case that God, of course, has no prior cause uh, and therefore cannot be composed of parts. Now, why is this important? I think it's important for a number of reasons, but above all, it really helps to to ground the transcendence of God. When we say that God is simple, we're saying there's nothing more basic than God. God is not composed of some more basic components, something, anything prior that's brought together through which God exists, right? There isn't anything behind God. There isn't anything underneath God. God is as far as you go, right? When you're moving up the causal chain. Uh, God doesn't depend on anything more basic than himself, more foundational than himself, from which he is composed, right? He is simply who and what he is uh, by, in virtue of himself, I say, right, in himself. So for this reason, we can say, right, that God is, is absolutely the first cause, right? It fits with God being absolutely the first cause. It also fits with God being purely actual, Right. That is, there's no other actuality that's behind uh, God, no uh, actuality that God depends upon that's more fundamental or dependent. God is the pure, uh, independent uh, actuality from which all other things, all other things uh, flow. So in this sense, right, uh, as being um, simple, God is unmixed. Right. That is, he's not mixed with anything other than himself. And very importantly, this means he transcends all categories Um, there. You know, if if God was, say, to be composed, then you'd have sort of a category and then a specific difference, a genus and specific difference that could be applicable to God. Therefore, God would be kind of one being among the other common beings of the 10 categories of being. But that is not the picture that St. Thomas is giving us at all right? Divine simplicity means that, you know, God is not composed of genus and species. Uh, There is no category, set of categories under which God falls, by which uh, he would be mixed. One final point here that's important to observe is the importance of divine simplicity regarding the doctrine of the Trinity. Sometimes these are set in opposition, and I don't want to go into a great deal of detail here, but I can just simply say this, that Divine simplicity means that when we're talking about the distinctions of of persons, that distinction of persons is not based on any distinction of in the essence. That's very important in order to to avoid any number of Trinitarian errors. And so that the unmixed, undifferentiated divine essence fully is expressed and realized in each the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
All right, friends. So that's a lot of heavy lifting. One last one here. And I've given you a lot here to, to think about. Uh, finally, we look at divine necessity. I would say that the, that um, when I was just starting to study St. Thomas, the idea of divine necessity or the real distinction of essence and existence in creatures and the real identity of essence and existence in God were considered, you know, the, the kind of high watermarks of Thomist philosophy. Now, you know, Thomas philosophy has kind of maybe moved on from that opinion a little bit or scholarship about Thomas, but certainly it remains a very, very important um, uh, question. So the way Thomas raises this, uh, or, you know, doctrine, the way, the way Thomas raises this this question is to say, um, is it the case, there's this question, that essence and existence really differ in God? So first, let's define our terms a bit here. Essence expresses the foundation of what it is, the foundational whatness of a uh, subject of a being um you know so my essence is you know, rational animal right that's 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 my essence uh, that's that's the what it is foundationally <clears throat> with the metaphysical sort of core right of my being um the exist uh, existence is that which actualizes right um that uh, potency to exist so we know we have from experience that human essence begins to exist and ceases to exist. And that means it exists contingently and must be made to actually exist by another, right? And so what is required is that that the human essence has the potency to exist, but it doesn't possess existence of itself. Rather, it must be caused, right, to, uh, in each instance, human essence must be caused to exist by something else, right? So we can say about any human being, right, that, human being as such is contingent being. So that's kind of the background. So let's think then about God. Can it be the case that essence, what God is, and existence, that God is, really differ in God? Well, if we if that were to be the case, we need to, to recognize something important, and that is that non-essential properties, non-essential attributes, that is ones that are not directly contained within the essence of a thing, must come to it uh, ultimately from something outside of itself, right? It must be acquired, right? Um, so if there is a non-essential attribute, say you have a green triangle, well, the, the, the greenness of the triangle is not part of the essence of triangle. Rather, there's some extraneous external factor that brings about the greenness of a particular triangle, right? Um, so now if that's the case with existence, right? If existence is something that doesn't belong to a thing's essence, then it must receive a, um, uh, uh, existence, must come to exist. And that, of course, means the actualization of its potential to exist. Well, that, of course, kicks us right back to the principle of causality, right? That is, the, if something comes to exist, then it must be caused to exist by another, right? But of course, that cannot be the case with respect to God, because then God would have a prior cause. The first cause would not be the first cause. Another way of putting it is that the uncaused cause would be caused, which is a contradiction. So it cannot therefore be the case uh, that essence and existence really differ in God. What God is and that God is are in fact the same thing. Now, the great uh, Thomist uh, theologian, um, Gergou Lagrange, uh, you know, insisted that this is, 
among the highest things that we can contemplate, and this is something that we will we will have some you know some kind of um, deeper understanding of in the beatific vision. Certainly, Thomists have uh, often thought of you know God's self identification as you know uh, in the burning bush and speaking to Moses as I am, as expressing this idea that unique among all beings in God, what God is and that God is are strictly identical. So the whatness of God and the existence of God are the same. It belongs to his very essence to exist. And since it belongs to his very essence to exist, let's say here at the very bottom uh, of the slide on divine necessity, um, God's existence is necessary. God cannot not exist, right? Uh, and that is because of um, right, the fact that his existence belongs to his essence. Now, it's very important here when you get to the necessary, the necessary existence of God, that you recognize that this is not an a priori deduction, strictly speaking. This, go, this is rooted in first causality, right? The key premise here was if essence and existence differed in God, then God would have to be have a prior cause. But we know from reason and experience important a posteriori that God cannot have a prior cause. So um, in this case, then we can say, okay, um, God exists necessar necessarily and cannot not exist, which of course is a, a you know radically different uh, kind of being than the kind of being that we encounter, the kind of being that we, that, that we experience. It is a radically transcendent form of being. Well, I know I've given you a lot to think about. There's a lot of heavy lifting uh, for one class, but I, I think these are some of the most vital truths, friends, uh, both just as a philosopher, you know, they, they actually, you know, give me a lot of joy to just contemplate and think about um, and, and to sort of um, just, you know, uh, marvel at. Uh, at the, and then, you know, with, with from the perspective of Christian faith, of course, this tells us some very important things about the God that we worship and the God who has saved us. Um, they tell us, right, that, that God is, uh, is you know, immutable, right? That is, God does not change, not because of some deficiency in himself, but because he is so actual, right? Because he is purely actual, he cannot change. Again, which is not a limitation, rather, his lack of change flows from the fact that he is unlimited actuality, right? He's the fullness, right, of actuality, so much so that he cannot become more actual than he is. In addition, we talked about the fact, the, the idea of divine simplicity, which points us to the, to the reality that, that there are, is nothing more basic, um, more foundational uh, than God from which God arises. Rather, God is what he is um, by his very nature, by himself. Uh, and then finally, looking at necessity, God exists uh, necessarily. And we know that, again, because of his first causality. There is nothing prior to God. God does not depend on anything uh, outside of himself. So at this point, you know, we I think we're starting to get a, a fill out the big picture of what God looks like in natural theology um, and a sort of a Thomist approach to classical theism. Well, you have here this being God, 
is the uncaused cause of all change. He is fully actual, completely actual, purely actual, without limitation, without composition, without differentiation, and cannot be otherwise, right? So you have this, I just, I mean, literally, of course, we can't comprehend it. I can, you know, I can kind of get little parts of it, right? And bring it in front of my mind and, oh yeah, or I shouldn't say parts, aspects, right? Of this truth and kind of bring it in front of my mind, but I, I can't see it all together. I know it doesn't contradict logically, um, but seeing it all at once, of course, is, is probably the work of a lifetime and, and, and really probably the gift of, of a heavenly beatitude. Uh, but again, what we find is that there must exist God who is the uncaused cause of all change, fully, perfectly, infinitely actual, without change, or differentiation, and necessarily so, and I would say from all eternity. Wow, what a being, what a God uh, we worship. Well, friends, I hope that you found these comments uh, useful and enjoyable and edifying. Uh, next time we will look at uh, the divine names, uh, that is, we will look at uh, the positive attributes uh, of God. Until then, God bless.